Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day, O God, our daily bread. Forgive us, dear God, forgive us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Please lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Surround us with your holiness. Deliver us from evil, from the evil one. Because we profess, Father, that yours alone is the power and the kingdom and the glory, both now and forevermore. Thank you for that prayer that you've given to us and the priorities of life that that prayer outlines for us. You, we're reminded that we exist to hallow your name above all things. That, that must be concrete in our lives, our work, our play, our recreation, our eating, our lovemaking, our washing of the dishes, our taking out of the garbage, all to hallow your name. I pray, dear God, that you would help us to that great end because we're prideful and selfish and too often think that we're entitled when in point of fact we forget that we have died to self and that the road of the cross is one of daily self-denial and following Christ, who by faith lives within us and is living through us. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But the life that I live by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What joy comes into one's heart when one meditates upon that. The reality that we're free, free from the pushing and the biting and the grabbing and the shoving and the cutting off and the demanding of so much of the world around us. We're free to leave vengeance in your hand Vengeance is yours, says the Lord. Instead, help us to be able to go the second mile, to turn the other cheek, and to entrust ourselves, as Jesus did, to you, our loving Heavenly Father, who, sooner and later, will make all things right, and you'll do away with all things sinful, all things evil, There'll be no more sickness and there'll be no more dying. There'll be no more gossip and there'll be no more backbiting. There'll be freedom from sin and death. Oh, the glorious thought of not being able to sin that awaits those who meet the Lord and spend all of eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. For these dear saints that are here this day, Father, a blessing upon their house. May your peace rest in their households. Shalom. May there be wholeness in the relationships there. May there be good health. And may there be bounty in the work that you've given to us. Not so that we can hoard, but so that we can give. 
so that we can testify, so that the light of Jesus Christ might go to the dark corners of our neighborhoods, of Staten Island, of New York, of the United States, yea, even of the world, because you are an international God who loves diversity and who in this moment is bringing the elect from every nation, tongue, and tribe into the kingdom. Oh, Father, how long, we ask, how long before Christ returns? How long must we continue to fight the fight against sin and death, to fight the fight against injustice? Oh, God, help us as you tarry and as you give us breath. You've given us a glorious calling. May it be, oh God, that when you come, you find us faithful, eagerly waiting, anticipating your glorious return. But until then, Father, we live in difficult times. Our bodies break down, our minds become clouded, and one day we will go the way of all flesh. May it be, Father, that we're ready, that we're ready and that we fear not death, because where is death? It has been overcome in that empty tomb some 2,000 years ago. Hallelujah. Father, would you anoint the proclamation of the word, move me out of the way, and may only the voice of God be heard in this room. And may you tune the hearts of each one, young and old, in this room to such a way that the frequency of God's word resonates directly with the frequency of one's own heart. And they find, we find ourselves transformed by the renewing of our minds and capable of knowing your will, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Lord, we love you. Have mercy on us when we love others and other things more than we love you. You are a merciful God, slow to angering and bound, abounding in steadfast love. Hallelujah. Christ is risen indeed. And it's in his holy name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Amen. Y'all ready? Good. Um, I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to assume it's true. It was 100% across the board in the first service. Let's see if there are any exceptions in the second service. Here's the opening statement. Living through a pandemic is a life-altering experience. Is that true? Anybody, anybody in this room who has not changed anything in their life in the past year? Has, has, has anything, anything at all changed in your life in the last year? Everybody's experienced that, right? As a direct result of the pandemic of which we are enduring currently. It has the effect, it seems to me, at least as I've reflected on it, it has the effect of forcing, and I don't necessarily like that word, but sometimes it feels like that. Like, I kick and scream. I say, I, you know, I, I don't want to have to do this right now. I don't want to feel like this right now. I'm tired of feeling like this right now. I'm tired of doing this right now. That's what I mean by force. It has the effect of forcing you to think through life's most important questions. Almost everybody that I've ever spoken to, ever, almost everybody that I have spoken to over the past year has said to me in some shape, manner, or form that it has sobered them and that they've thought about things that they've never, ever, never, ever thought before. It may have been in the way back of their mind, but this has moved it forward. Like, what is my life really all about? 
Have you thought something like that over the last year? Like, what am I doing? As I said in the first service, my, my wife will tell you, I've literally had moments where I've walked around the house and I've said, what in the world am I doing? What is happening? Am I right? Testify now, woman. <laughs> it has the effect of forcing these things upon us. What is my life truly all about? What happens when I die? Is there anybody in the room that has not thought about dying in the last year? You haven't thought about dying? It was an accident. You have thought about dying in the last year? Well, what, last week. Not recently, but last week. And you're, and you're the youngest one in the room right now, and even down a year, where kids your age don't think about dying. I've certainly thought a lot about dying. Our forefathers tell us that one of the ways to live is to think about dying. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. We, we avoid dying. We avoid talk about death as much as we possibly can. I mean, all you have to do if you go to a grocery store is just look at the magazine racks and there is just cover after cover after cover of wellness and how to prolong your life. I read an article a couple of weeks ago, Science Now, is, is projecting that they're going to be able to enable us to live forever. You know, we're, we're, we're perpetually in pursuit of eternal life. We just don't look in the right places for it. What is my life all about? What happens when I die? Why is there suffering in the world? I've wrung my hands a fair bit with regard to that as the numbers, thankfully, the deaths anyway, are tapering off, but so much suffering. And then, be honest, have you wondered whether or not God even is, whether he exists? Some of you perhaps have never wondered that, and that's a good thing. But it's uh, on the minds of many out there, you know, if there is a God, why is this going on right now? Throughout Holy Week, uh, we've emphasized an aspect of the Christian faith that is often maligned in a world today, especially in our culture, what I've labeled subjectively tolerant. Tolerance is a massive virtue in our world today, but only so, it's only virtuous so long as it's consistent with what my worldview is. That's why I told, uh, described it as subjective tolerance. You know, we ought to be tolerant of the beliefs of others. I, I believe that. I don't have a problem with that. But the tolerance becomes, rapidly becomes intolerance when your belief strikes me as something that I don't like. And then this whole concept of tolerance becomes entirely subjective. And so one of the things we've uh, emphasized as an aspect of our Christian faith is this idea that you and I can have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught. That's an audacious statement in the world today, that you can be certain about something, that you can, you can even intimate that there's something, something such as, a, as truth with a capital T, truth that is to be grasped, held on to, savored by all people at all times, everywhere. That's an audacious statement in the world today. N nobody has that kind of claim, not even God himself. Why? Because it impinges upon my rights, my entitlements. If I don't like that, it might be, as I said to John, John's my foil, as I said to John, if that's your truth, John, it's good for you, but it may not work for me goes the line with most of our neighbors and our, perhaps even our co-workers and maybe even some family members. You and I, that despite the circumstances around us, can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. We've been saying that from 
last Sunday, and we saw that in Luke's introduction to his gospel. Let me put it another way for you. We can have confidence in the truthfulness of our fundamental beliefs. As Christians, we've got no reason to put our head in the sand. We've got no reason to go run and hide. We extend the love of Jesus Christ. Yes, it does call people to repentance, and that's where the waters start to get rough. We can have this confidence because we've seen and heard Luke's orderly, historical, eyewitness account of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. Luke has two introductions because he's got two volumes in the New Testament, the Gospel according to Luke and his second volume, which is the book of Acts. And he opens both books with an introduction. In Luke 1, 1 to 4, he's writing to his friend Theophilus, whose name literally means lover of God. He's writing to Theophilus, who's probably a new believer, a, an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that Theophilus can hold on to, he can grasp what it is that he's been taught. And Luke, being a medical doctor, is also an historian. And he puts things together in an orderly account. There are stories of Jesus that are circulating, and he's, he's getting them together, and he's talking to the eyewitnesses that are still there. And he's putting them together, as this mind would do, and putting together in an orderly account. So why? So that Theophilus, Theophilus can be certain of the things that he's been taught. And then he finishes the life of Jesus, and he writes the second volume, the book of Acts, and he opens up the book of Acts with a similar introduction. He says in the opening to Acts that he's now finished everything that he needed to say about Jesus, all that he began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. And the ascension, which God willing we'll talk about next week, the ascension closes the Gospel of Luke and opens the book of Acts. So it's a massive hinge for Luke because Jesus has now returned to the right hand of the Father and continues to minister to his church and expand his ministry throughout the world. This morning, our journey with Jesus in the gospel, according to Luke, takes us to history's singularly greatest truth. And everybody in this room knows it. It's not complex this morning. It's straightforward so that we would be reminded of the profundity of our faith. It is this. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead just as he said. That's the truth. That's the singularly greatest truth humanity has ever known, whether it's acknowledged or not, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We are in the year 2021, the year of our Lord. It is literally, the resurrection is literally the hinge of human history. Prior to the resurrection, B.C., before Christ, although many today won't use that kind of language, after Christ, A.D., the year of our Lord in Latin. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, just as he said. And in fact, as the angelic beings that spoke to the women in the empty tomb, he says, remember that he told you. That's the banner that flies over what we're doing here this morning. Remember he told you these things, which is why it's also a perfect setup for communion. Because what does Jesus tell us to do when we come to this table? Remember. Do this in remembrance of me. And like I said in the first service, I say almost every single month, why does he tell us to do this? He tells us to do this because we forget. We forget the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and that that has impact for your life now. So when we gather together, we proclaim the word and we break the bread. Why? So that we can remember again. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you eat it. There are two questions I said this morning, very simple. There's one out of Luke 23, and there's one out of Luke 24. 
two questions that we'll ask. The one in Luke 23 is inferred. It's not directly in the text, but I'll show you why it's there. Luke 23, why does the Bible emphasize the burial of Jesus? That's not a trivia question. It's a question that you and I need to answer because all four gospel writers have a little bit of an extended paragraph on the burial of Jesus. Why? Why is that such an integral part of the story that they want to tell? And the second question out of Luke 24 is directly out of the text. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, lest you think that that's an old question asked of those ladies that were in the tomb, I'm going to show you why that's a 21st century question as well in just a minute. Why do you seek the living among the dead? So those are two questions. It's only going to take a few minutes. Very simple Christian truths that I want you to latch on to and take home on this Resurrection Sunday and meditate upon them in the days to come. Remember how he told you. Let's look at the first question. Why does the Bible emphasize the burial of Jesus? Come to me, if, uh, come, to, come with me, if you please, uh, to Luke 23. Put a finger there in Luke 23 because I'm going to take you to Matthew in just a second. In the, in the Lenten devotional that a number of you are reading, finishes today, written by Sinclair Ferguson, he's the one who raises this question. It picked my interest a few days ago. I was struggling with how to get the outline to work, and, and this was a very helpful piece for me. This question, as I've already said to you, doesn't appear directly in the Bible. All four gospel writers include the details of Jesus' burial. Ought to get our attention. Hmm. Four voices, including this material. I better pay attention. So if we look and listen carefully, I think the answer is really rather straightforward. And for those of you who have been around a block or two, you probably already know the answer to that. I asked you to put a finger on Luke 23, and while that finger's there, take your other hand and take, us, take yourself to Matthew 27, if you would, with me, please. Matthew 27, long chapter, 66 verses. We're going to look at 62. Matthew 27, 62. Here's the most direct answer to the question, why is Jesus' burial such a big deal? Why is it included by all four gospel writers? Uh, Matthew 27, verse, verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, speaking of Jesus, said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Well, it's good to know that they heard him, and now they're a little bit anxious, because the clock is ticking. Verse 64, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, hey, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud, Jesus telling us he's going to rise from the dead, will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Not messing around here. Like I also said in the first century, this is about as high security as you possibly can get. This isn't finding, no offense, this isn't firing finding a retired New York police department who wants to work in his own uh, security business part-time. This is what these men did for a living. They're pros. So if they're sealing a tomb with a, with a rock that would have taken, I don't know how many men to move, and then they're standing by that tomb and guarding it, I'm here to tell you, you're not getting into that tomb. Matthew wants us to understand this because this is part of the answer as to why we're told by all four gospel writers that Jesus was dead. 
Come back to me now to Luke 23, if you would. Luke 23, beginning in verse 50. And what I want you to notice here is, is the labor that Luke goes into to include the, a number of witnesses that were there. Luke, as I said, is an historian, so he wants eyewitness accounts. He doesn't just want to quote second sources, or he doesn't just want to say, this is what I think it should be. Luke's going to paint a very clear picture here of a number of people who saw this, and he's going to arrange it in an orderly way. Luke 23, beginning in 50. 2350. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, Sanhedrin, and a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision. So he had a little bit of backbone. He stood against them. He said, no, I'm going to be the minority voice here. I am not going to agree in sending this man to the cross. He did not consent to the decision and their action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So what is Luke doing? Luke is painting a very clear picture of jo Joseph of Arimathea as being a man of integrity. That's what he wants you to see. The man has character. This isn't some fly-by-night guy that, they, that, that can be rented to give expert testimony vis-a-vis uh, -vis a charge made against Jesus. It's a man with integrity. Verse 52. This man went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud, laid him in a tomb, cut in stone, where no one had ever been laid. Yet it was the day of Passover. Uh, ex excuse me. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Jesus crucified between noon and 3. That's the sixth hour. Timing starts at 6 a.m. Six hours, it's noon. Hung on the cross for three hours till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Sundown at 6 p.m., so the Jews had to move real fast. They've got a three-hour window here. Joseph of Arimathea, and as John tells us in John chapter 19, Nicodemus was also with Joseph of Arimathea preparing the body of Jesus. You remember Nicodemus, the one who was absolutely befuddled in John chapter 3 when he was told that he must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom. And Nicodemus somewhat head-scratchingly says, well, wait a minute, I'm a grown man. How am I going to enter back into my mother's womb? entirely missing the point that Jesus was making. Nevertheless, you've got two high-integrity guys that are surrounding this entire scene right now. So you've got Roman soldiers, you've got Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Read on with me in the day of preparation. So they're hustling between 3 and 6 because you can't be working when the sun goes down. Verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, how his body was laid. They, they, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So they're watching these two men of integrity. This is what they're doing. They're not in the tomb, but they're watching. They're looking. They're making notes. They're feeling, okay, he's down. He's secure. He's laid. Now it's time for the ladies to go home and to prepare the bombing, the embalming solution that they're going to need so that his body, the rot of his body slows down. And then there's this fantastic line. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. I asked the, I asked the first group this morning, like, don't, don't you just feel settled? All this hustle and now Sabbath and things are quiet. What do you suppose they were thinking? It's Saturday. They don't know if the third day is going to lead to resurrection. There's maybe some anxiety in the house, but they're obedient to the commandment of the Lord. What is about to unfold 
Luke makes it very clear, as do the other gospel writers, that the answer to the question, why does the Bible emphasize the burial of Jesus, is because Jesus was dead. It sounds rather mundane, but in order for resurrection to be legitimate, that body has got to be dead. And the gospel writers make no bones about the fact that professional, professional executioners and professional security guards, as well as high-integrity Jewish men, as well as a number of women, saw it. He was dead. I'm emphasizing that because, as I've just said to you, as we'll see in the second question, resurrection is not resurrection if the body wasn't dead. Jesus was dead. That's why I'm emphasizing it this morning, in case anybody in the 21st century comes at you with a first century heresy. Well, he really wasn't dead. He still had a pulse. His heart was still beating. Jesus was dead. Well, when he got laid in the cool tomb, he got revived. No, like I said to the first group as well, I won't get into all the medical stuff that went, went on, but what happened to Jesus, there's no way he comes back because it's now cool, because the AC is now at 62. Jesus was dead. These same security guards were at the cross. They know what death by crucifixion looks like. And so when one of them comes to break Jesus' legs, which would have hastened the asphyxiation process that would have killed the, the one being executed, Jesus died by drowning. I don't know if you know that. He was asphyxiated. And so they came to him, and they went to break his legs so that they couldn't thrust himself back up again and get another breath. But seeing that he is already dead, they didn't break his legs, which, by the way, is fulfillment of prophecy, that not one of his bones will be broken. And then they thrust the spear in his side, and what came out? Blood and what? Water. Blood and water. He was dead. The people who would have known in that day knew that he was dead. Why does the Bible emphasize the burial of Jesus? So that there's no qualms. There are no questions about whether or not he swooned or whether or not he was stolen. Listen, as I said to the first group, I have a book on my shelf at home that I think is one of the most brilliantly titled books that I, that I have. It's called, it, it, this is the title, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's a profound statement because some of the theories that still swirl around Time Magazine and National Geographic, they sell, they sell hundreds of thousands this time every year when they run the same story again. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Somebody just needs to go shout in those offices, yes, he did, stop printing this nonsense. Christ was dead. The body was not stolen. He did not swoon. He was dead. 
Second question as we move to Luke chapter 24 is, why do you seek the living among the dead then? So you see this transition that's going to occur. It comes directly from the text. It's verse 5 of Luke chapter 24. They were frightened. They bowed their faces to the ground, those, those ladies. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? This is a surreal picture that's here. Uh, they're supernatural beings. They're described as men. They're male if angels have gender. They're described as men, at least in form, and they're dressed dazzlingly. And we know that at any appearance of a supernatural being, those who are human immediately fall to the ground, much like these women did at the view of these supernatural beings sent there by the Lord. And they ask, they asked them, why, why are you here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The list of those that are bearing testimony to the facts of the case now expands to include supernatural beings. You've got Roman guards, you've got Jewish men, you've got, you've got women who are going to embalm the body, and now you've got supernatural beings. It's like the whole world is giving testimony to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. These two men stood by the women in dazzling apparel, and they asked what I'm describing as a perpetually relevant question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Now, why do I describe it as perpetually relevant? Perpetually means it's ongoingly relevant, as I just said to you. Uh, because we must ask this question today. Why do? I mean, ask yourself this question. Why do your friends, why do your family members, why do your neighbors... As the old country song says, look for love in all of the wrong places. Why, why do we do it? Why do we seek satisfaction and joy in places and persons and things that ultimately will fail them? Why do we seek the living in the presence of the dead? It's a question that wasn't just locked into that singular moment. It's a question that we have to ask even of our friends. Why are you looking for love, why are you looking for joy? Why are you looking for satisfaction and comfort and safety in all of these things that you know in your heart of hearts are fleeting in vain and passing away? It's an extraordinary apologetic for the coming of Jesus Christ. Back to the question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Now, notice what happens in verse 6 and 7. He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and on the third day rise. So he says to them, remember, he told you this. Re remember. This is why I'm asking you the question. You should not be seeking a living among the dead. If you recall what it is that he told you, then you wouldn't be here right now. You'd fully expect the fact that he has risen from the dead, just as he said that he would. And what's the response? What is the response? Read with me in 8 and 9. And they remembered his words like, ah, it's like the proverbial dope slap. Ah, I had forgotten that he had said these things. Really? Really? That's what I do on the inside. Really? Jesus walked among you and said he was going to die and he was going to rise again on the third day and you forgot? Because I would never have done that. He says with a hint of sarcasm. And they remembered his words, 
and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Is that is that not what happens? Is that not what should happen? You remember what it is that he's done for you, and you what do you do? You turn tail and you can't stop telling other people because of what you've seen Jesus do in your life. And not for nothing, it's the women who do it. So let's let's be done with this nonsense that the Bible is anti-women. Oh my. Jesus, Jesus transformed the culture of his day vis-a-vis women, putting them in the tomb, and they're the first evangelists from the resurrection. Come on. And they remembered. And once that light goes on, and tell me it's not true in your own life, that light goes on, what do you do? You get good news, you can't wait to share it with somebody. It, regardless of what it is. Hey, I got a new video game. You're not sitting there not telling anybody about it. You're telling all your friends about it. Hey, my, my daughter's getting married. I'm not going to keep walking back and forth and not talk to anybody about it. Any good news you get, you share. Why? Because it doubles your joy, triples your joy. That's a fact of life, isn't it? Hey, I got a promotion. I'm not going to tell anybody about it, though. Why do you want to tell? Because you want people to celebrate with you, so forth. They remembered his words, and returning, they told. Now, it's not just the ladies here. Let's, let's not think that they're being painted in a bad light. If you turn, let your eyes go across the page. In 24, beginning in verse 25 of Luke 24, he, Jesus, said to them, the two disciples that he meets on the road to Emmaus, probably husband and wife, Cleopas and, Cleopas and his wife, um, and he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 26, was it not necessary, here it comes again, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Didn't I tell you that? Patiently, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's an enormous verse in the scriptures. Jesus himself telling us that the Bible is about him. Even the Old Testament, all three major portions of it. Law, writings, and prophets have him at the centerpiece of it all. So it's not just the ladies, it's also this couple who is just down in the mouth because they thought, man, he was the one that was going to come, he's going to liberate Israel. Well, what are you talking about? They say to Jesus, where have you been, under a rock? Jesus says, well, as a matter of fact, yeah, I have been. But it wasn't until they invited him in provided him with hospitality, and he sat down at meal, and he took the bread, and he broke it, and then their light went on. And the scriptures tell us, in a little bit later in Luke 24, that in the breaking of bread, they recognized who he was. So church, here's what I want you to do. In a few minutes, when I break this bread and I share it, and we share the little cup that we have with you, I want you to see Jesus. In the breaking of bread, they saw him. And then they looked at one another and said, Hey, wait a minute. Did, did you have this? Yeah, I just thought it was indigestion. No, it wasn't indigestion. It was the work of the Holy Ghost. Warming their innards as Jesus unfolded page after page after page of Holy Scripture, pointing to how it was all about him. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Take us all the way back. Remember, if you go back a week with me to Palm Sunday, 1831, right? Chapter 18, verse 31, 
Did he not tell you then that all that had been prophesied about the Son of Man must be fulfilled? Here's the circle being closed in the Holy Week events from, Matthew, uh, from Luke 18.31 all the way to Luke 24. So the answer to our second question, why do you seek the living among the dead, is, is because tombs are for dead people. Here's the second truth. Take it home. Jesus is alive. Amen. Jesus is alive. It's a very simple sermon. The first truth that I want you to take home is that Jesus was dead. And the second one, Jesus is alive. The verbs are incredibly crucial. One's a past tense, was dead. One's a present tense, he's alive. And that's the message of Christianity. It's a simple message for you and for me today. He was dead, he's now alive. It turns us to the table and we remember with humble certainty how he told us that the Son of Man must be crucified and on the third day rise. I say humble certainty because it is certain. Luke's work is certain for us. Eyewitnesses all over the place, certain, recorded for us, preserved for us, certain, but humbly so. We're not great. God, God has not looked down upon us and said, oh, I need you in my kingdom. Oh, and I need you, so because you're so special, I'm going to make... No, 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 no. As I said in the first service, I'm just a beggar who's found bread, and I want to share it with other beggars. Remember, you hear me say it every month. Why does he say, do this in remembrance of me? Because he knows we forget. I forget my name sometimes now. And I live, I live too long stretches a period of time where I forget that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I'm worrying and I'm anxious and I'm fearful and I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to do everything in my own strength. And I fail, I fail this. I fail just to hear my own voice say, Mark, Jesus is alive. You're living right now as though he was still in the tomb. Can I get a witness? I don't mean to be cute when I say that there are grave consequences for forgetting that the Son of Man must be crucified and on the third day rise. You, you can't boil down the gospel message more simply than to say Jesus was dead, Jesus is now alive. There's great danger in forgetting that. There's great danger in never knowing that. This is why, one of the reasons why we have this table because it's a visualization of what it is that we need to remember. Remember that the angels told the women to remember, and when they were instructed, they did. Without overusing the word, here we are. Jesus is asking us to remember that he told us to remember. Because in Luke chapter 22, he says what? Do this in remembrance of me. So in that meal together, he took the bread. It was a singular loaf, and he broke it. He blessed it. He gave thanks, and he doled it out. They would not have missed the point that from one, 
we are each a part. It's exactly like Paul describes in Romans chapter 12 with regard to the gifts that he's given to the body of Christ. And so though we, under the pandemic, have to do this, I still do this so that you'll see it. Maybe even smell it, feel it, and realize it. That Christ, one of the things that Christ died for was the unified body of Christ. So that you and I are part of one whole, one family, members of one another. This is why we take literally the words of Jesus when he tells us to do this as often as you drink it, to do this as often as you eat it, and to do it in remembrance of him. Thank God he remembers that we forget. And he calls us back. <laughs>